on the Figures of Speech podcast, hosts Tammy Palazzo and Tim Wickstrom talk to a wide range of amazingly successful executives, business owners, and leaders about how learning to communicate changed their lives and their fortunes. Every episode gives us stories we can emulate and lessons we can follow. Welcome to Figures of Speech. I'm Tammy Palazzo, and I'm here with my co-host, Tim Wickstrom. Today, we're delighted to have Lakshmi Balakandra, who's a professor of entrepreneurship at Babson College. Some of her research has included examining the impact of trust, gender, and other entrepreneurial characteristics in acquiring early stage funding. She's a former venture capitalist and has really been delving deep into the topic of body language and how it plays out in our gender norms. Welcome, Lakshmi. We're so happy to have you on our podcast today. As we get started, we'd love for you to share a little bit about your background with us, and then we can jump in. Okay. Um, Hi, Tammy and Tim. It's a pleasure to be here. I am a professor of entrepreneurship at Babson College in Wellesley, Massachusetts, the number one school for entrepreneurship in the country. Happy to say for like Yay, yeah, right. Um, and I teach entrepreneurship, and I research um, pretty much. I research everything about pitching and venture capital funding, and I do this primarily because prior to my life in academia, being a professor, I worked in venture capital, so I saw uh, lots and lots of pitches. And I was one of the few women in venture capital. So I also got that experience and saw very few women pitching. But I've also studied the amount of venture capital funding that goes to women um, now as part of as a researcher, um, something I experienced being a professional in venture capital uh, and one of the few women. So that is kind of my professional lens. Um, and then prior to kind of uh, well, and before venture capital, I actually had my own business. I had a retail toy store. But um, the other thing about me is on the side of my professional life and my research life, I uh, did stand-up comedy and improv comedy. So I've been on the performance side of things. So I guess I bring some of that to my research as well. I love that about you. It's such a unexpected component of your story. I know. But once you get to know you, it totally makes sense. Like you could totally see it. I'd love to share for our listeners how we came to know you because it's sort of a, I guess it's a funny and it will reveal some level of stalkerish behavior on my part. (laughs) But we discovered you because we read Amy Cuddy's book that your research was quoted in. Right. And after we saw that, we said we need to find her. And we researched and tried (laughs) to figure out how to find you. And that's how I initially learned that you had done some stand-up comedy because I remember finding your profile and I thought, this can't be the same person. There's no (laughs) way that that's the same person who did that. But I I just want to share a little bit about my my take on what we learned about you initially because it was really important to us when we discovered your research and it was really timely because we started using it when we were pitching investors and to this day, and I've shared this with you recently, I probably tell this story once or five times a week. Like I I talk about this quite frequently and Tim can attest 
to that that I'm I'm really not I'm not pretending. It is very true. But what we learned in Amy Cuddy's book, Presence, what we learned, what we learned in Amy Cuddy's book is that you had done this really, really interesting research on why certain people were able to raise venture capital. And you really you validated what we have been talking about for quite some time now, and it was the impetus for us starting our company, which is that the nonverbal communication is perhaps not more important than the verbal communication, but it can really have a, an enormous impact on verbal communication. And what you did is you looked at 185 venture capital presentations. And what I love about it is you looked at it from a lot of different angles. You looked at it from the pitch deck. You looked at it from the backgrounds of the founders. What, you know, what credentials did they bring to the table? And you looked at their videos. So you came at it from a very three-dimensional perspective. And as we talk about it, the three things that you found were the common traits were confidence, comfort, and a passionate enthusiasm for their business. So if you think I haven't been talking about this on a regular basis, I've just proven to you that I am very fluent in this. And, And we've actually, in all seriousness, we've used this as part of our pitches, as a really good anecdote that right now, investors, when you're looking at us, this is what you're looking for. You, you know, I can have all the greatest content in a deck possible, but if I can't exhibit some level of confidence, some level of comfort, and certainly a great deal of passion, you're probably not going to invest in me. But I guess there's a whole other part of it now. You're probably also not gonna invest in me because I'm a woman. Well, it's not quite so simple. <laughs> I'd like to say it's that simple. <laughs> um, but you're 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 somewhat right. There is, I mean, the reality is, and this is another part of my work has been looking at the amount of venture capital funding. The reality is, is that you know the funding amounts to women have um, not changed in over 20 years when it comes to venture capital funding, it is still, you know, less than 10% of all VC dollars go to women. But our definition, our study that we produced in 2014 was that if there was a woman on the executive team, now the more dire statistic is that less than 3% of all venture capital dollars go to women founders or women CEOs. And that number is really less than 2.5%. The latest statistic was, you know, 2.3% of all VC dollars go to women founders. It's a big problem. So you could look at that statistic and conceivably say, or rightly say, that women don't get venture capital funding. But what I actually found in the study that you mentioned, you know, when I looked at 185 pitches to VCs, and we actually used a venture capital a pitch competition. So it was a very limited, very structured, you know, all the pitches were time bound. Um, they were being judged by venture capitalists that were experts in their industry. And what we found is that it's not a being a woman that limited them from winning the competition, but is what we're calling um, feminine behaviors. So in other words, just as you mentioned, the nonverbals or how someone presented, whether if it was in a masculine style, the confidence, the comfort, kind of the the confident enthusiasm, I would say, of presenting versus someone that's more, let's say, you know, expressive or mild-mannered or, you know, the warmth factor that 
typically resonates, and according to Amy Cuddy's work, right, in terms of trust, we actually found those things were less suitable for the venture capital pitch context. And so those feminine attributes of a presenter were what were less interesting for venture capitalists. And those could be men or women. So, you know, there isn't necessarily a direct bias against being a woman, but against being feminine. I love I love that you brought that up because in your latest article that you put out recently talking about those feminine characteristics, I appreciate that you pointed out this doesn't apply to a gender perspective. It's yeah. really a characteristic perspective. Males exhibiting the same characteristics had the same challenge. Yet it was also interesting in your article, you mentioned not displaying those for a woman didn't give a leg up. It made it equal. So yeah. it's not it's not like that they advance. Yet what's ironic to me, and I want to hear your thoughts on this, what's ironic to me is there's all this research that says women-led companies, startups, they they do better. They statistically are better companies to invest in. Yeah. What's going to change that gap? Yeah. What are your thoughts on that? Uh, that's such a great comment. And it's, you know, there is so, so much research around the fact that women, you know, perhaps do make better managers because inherently women tend to be more collaborative, more, you know, have better communication styles, et cetera, et cetera. Like all these qualities that are really great for leadership roles, managerial roles. Unfortunately, the problem, especially in entrepreneurship, is that we have such a fixed image of what a successful entrepreneur is. You know, if I ask my class, for example, you know, what do you think of if I say entrepreneur, the same names come up, they are inevitably men. And most of the time, you know, most recently, now it's, you know, Mark Zuckerberg, you know, a young man, right? There is such a dominant image of what a successful entrepreneur is. And that is a young white man Right. acts in quote, you know, masculine or more masculine behaviors. So until that image is really disentangled from, you know, successful entrepreneur, I think it's going to go well. I think that that's interesting because I, I love the idea. And this is not a new conversation, right? The topic's been around for a long time and it makes me wonder how do you make it a blind approach? Uh, mm-hmm. Having... Yeah. This is where technology maybe can come in, neutralize everyone's voice, take yeah. out the qualities, make it very neutral. You don't even see names of people to know male or female or assume that Kim is a male or a female, that you could really just assign an ID and then see what people would come out with in the end from something that removes all those biases. I just wonder how we change the conversation. It's a great point. you know, And I think... Part of this is really seeing more women in these roles, getting more uh, women in leadership roles, getting more funded women to showcase the successes that we know, you know, can happen from the study perspective. So until we disentangle that image of success, right, and this is across the boards. I mean, there is a natural, right, in, in political, political science, right, we, in politics, we see this over and over again that, you know, 40 what, 45 of, you know, of our nation's leaders, they've always been a man. In all of these roles, you see men that, and so we have this natural assumption of that role, of course, should go to a man because that's who's successful in the role, even though we don't know if a woman could be successful 
or when they are successful, they're not, you know, there's so few of them that it's hard to break away from these, the role stereotype. It seems like one of the ways that the industry, if you will, is tackling this is more women are starting their own venture capital firms. Yes. Is that a true solution to the problem? Uh, Understanding that from a networking perspective, women don't always have the same access to male VCs because they don't necessarily congregate in the same circles. But are women going to truly evaluate women differently? Do you think that we are hardwired to look at a potential entrepreneur that we might invest in the same way? Or do you think that women are going to bring a different lens to that? Because I often wonder, is is it something that is not necessarily, it's gender-based in terms of the way they show up, but is it gender-based in terms of the way we perceive them? Oh, great question. I mean, this is, um, so Yes, we do need more women in decision-making roles, right? And in leadership to kind of change, to change at least the status quo and not, and have some different perspective. Now, having said that, because the women in the field have also been basically trained and also have experienced these stereotypes and expectations um, there are many women who are also following the same biases, right? Who are also subject to the same biases that uh, that the men are. So it's, you know, I, and in fact, I will tell you quite honestly, when I worked in venture capital, you know, in my first venture capital job, I was the only woman in the room. I was an associate with, you know, three male partners, a couple other men associates. And there would have been perhaps a business that came in pitched by a woman that was perhaps a, you know, and the quote used to be, oh, you know, that's a mommy business. Oh my gosh. That's a mommy business. So that would immediately be dismissed as, oh, there's not a big enough market and oh, you know. Not Not a real problem. Right, not a real problem and there's no growth potential. And to be quite honest with you, I may have said the same thing. When you're surrounded, when you think that that's, what the expectation is and that you're trained and that there's no market there or that, you know, this isn't capable of making the returns, you start thinking that way. So, I mean, we often see a lot of, honestly, you know, a lot of misogyny comes from women. Right. Because we are also thinking along the same, you know, status quo bias that we've learned from everyone around us. You reminded me of a conversation Tammy and I had about a month or two ago. We were doing an event out on the West Coast and we met with a potential investor slash mentor person and female, uh, you know, our generation, later generation. And it was interesting in the conversation, we were touching on this very subject of women and VC funding and the disparity. And I was a little shocked at her response initially, but it really aligns with what you said. Her initial reaction was, get over it. It's Mm -hmm. the way it is. And that was the word she used, get over it. It's the way that it is. And yet you, you you know, we hear all of these other younger generations who don't accept that, who don't make it happen. So I think there's got to be eventually this tidal wave of change that's coming. Maybe it's just a ripple but hopefully it's going to build momentum and continue to reshape how we view these because mm-hmm. I think you're right. There's, 
there is still a stereotype that there's a conditioning that happens even for women in the process of having gone through it, that we, that they become numb to it. I can recognize it. I understand it's not fair. And at the same time, well, so what do I do? I've had to live my whole life through it. Yeah. Uh, I, I, I don't even, I would go so far as to say, I don't even know if there's necessarily an awareness of it either. So for example, like, so when, um, you know, the whole term, there was actually a paper written about this, not my work, but it was very interesting how they looked at this, this notion of cat fights, right? That women in leadership roles can't be, you know, you can't have more than one woman in a leadership role because right. inevitably they'll fight or they'll split up or whatever. And so, you know, that women are super competitive and don't help each other. And so they did analysis. And what they found is that this notion of cat fight only exists because there are so few women in these leadership roles. So whenever there is a management disagreement like that gets, you know, there's a spotlight shown on them. But if you statistically look at the cat fights among men, they are far greater. There right. are far worse, you know, right. cat behavior among men being, you know, not willing to, to work with each other or having some, you know, I'm not talking to them sort of situation. I mean, we need look no farther than our White House, right, to see this sort of behavior, but women get pegged with that, and that becomes, you know, oh, women can't do this. Well, no, men can too, and men probably do it far more, but because there's so few women, and then we buy into that assumption when it gets, you know, promoted and the the spotlight is shown on this behavior. So, yeah, I, that drives me crazy, because I've heard so many women say that, oh, well, women can't get along or women get, you know, they'll cat fight. Like, mm, no, men do it too. You don't so the men, are the one, men are the ones talking about it. They're the ones highlighting it. They, yeah. Right, they perpetuate that. They perpetuate it. There was a piece written probably about 10 years ago now in the New York Times that became a, a, a really... Uh, it, w- it was it was a piece that I think started a very large conversation, and it was just about this that the biggest enemy essentially to women are other women, and it became the topic of conversation. Mm-hmm. And and you know it, it it followed along the same lines of what you're talking about, mm-hmm. which is there's only room for one, right? And we're just going to knock each other down because yeah. the only way that I can get to that spot. Mm-hmm is by destroying the competition. Mm-hmm. So it's mm-hmm. very doggy dog, you know, where it's survivor, you're going to get voted off the island because I'm the only one who can prevail. <laughs> and by the way, when I do prevail, I'm not helping anybody else because yeah. nobody helped me because I got right. there on my own merits by killing everybody else along yeah. the way, which yeah. is really unfortunate because I, what I perceive happening now, particularly with VCs, and what I love about it is that women are coming together and saying, we're going to shine a spotlight on exactly. women. Exactly. And we're only going to look at women. I mean, well, you know, you, you want to be diverse, but we need to make mm-hmm. sure that we're giving women opportunities to come to the table right. and not make it that there's only one spot. Right. And, well, suddenly- and the fact is, Tammy, like the new VC or the male, the men owned VC funds don't say that they're invest, you know, that they're a men's fund, but that's right. what they turn out to be because that's right. all they invest in and that's right. all part of their team. So. Right. You know, I always think there's more to the story and, and everything that you've said, I completely agree with. And I've done a lot of work on gender over the past 10 or 15 years. So it's, it resonates with everything that I've experienced, but I always think there's another there there. And of course I, I, it's kind of what I said to you in that 
our perceptions are so deep mm-hmm. and we struggle to have any kind of awareness of our perceptions. And I do wonder if we are so conditioned to see the world through a certain lens. And despite the fact that maybe we are evolved women, let's say, and even men are evolved in our thinking and recognize the fact that we need to bring more women to the table, that we can't get past our own deep biases that exist. And that's the part that it feels like to, to truly have a sea change, you need generations and yeah. generations, right? You look at the rest of the world and we hear these stories all the time. There are yeah. women leaders all over the world in countries where women are treated as second-class citizens, yet they have women leaders. Right. How right. does that happen? Huh. And in our country where we're, we're, we have the worst statistics around mm-hmm. the world of yeah. having women in leadership roles or in political leadership mm-hmm. roles. So mm-hmm. I, 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 I really... I question how deep this goes. And and before we, we got on the podcast, we were talking a little bit about two examples that I find really interesting. One is Elizabeth Holmes. So she's a big, she's a big name again uh, since the book came out and, and this documentary just came out and now Jennifer Lawrence is going to be playing her in a feature film. But the whole conversation around Elizabeth Holmes, aside from fraud, obviously, is how she altered herself, how she tried to be more masculine or more male. I mean, what are your thoughts about that? I find it so fascinating. And it's, um, it, I knew about this actually when I, you know, so I've taught, um, basically pitching or, you know, how to present to um, several women's entrepreneurship groups. And a woman in one of the entrepreneurship groups that I was teaching one night said, you know, everything you just said reminded me of Elizabeth Holmes. Mm-hmm. I didn't know that she had changed her voice. You know, she said she purposely talks like a man and she dresses like a man. All of her behaviors are very masculine. And I was watching her on the show and everything you said just made me realize like that is so important that like the performative aspect of Elizabeth Holmes was fascinating, right? That she chose to take on this masculine voice. Right. Look, surfer know, dude voice, but masculine. Look, right. To look like a man, you know, to dress like Steve Jobs, to really go down that male successful role model persona and develop that and really stick to it. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so I think in some ways, you know, well, in a lot of ways, she was a genius, right? Because I mean, she was. She able- raised close to a billion dollars. I mean, you right? can't deny that. She and raised a billion dollars like, on nothing, on something that she never worked. able to convince all these people to get yeah. behind her. And I do think a big part of it is that she was successfully able to navigate past her sex, right? And go into this. Like un like male gender norm for yeah. success incredibly well, and it's convincing because it I tell you you know I so you know I'm I, I I totally agree with you because I feel like I'm victim to it too, and this is a little bit of a side note, but just as an example. So we know that male professors get much higher ratings, like an you know an old white guy can walk in a classroom and can say like you know 
basically trip over himself and get good student evaluations. Whereas with me, they, you know, I'm, I look younger, I'm brown, you know, it's definitely more of a challenge for them to believe or find me being authoritative, authority, you know, an authority, uh, authority figure at all. And I taught with this woman last year, who's one of the best teachers I've ever seen. She was great. She's, you know, she's quite young and a great teacher, really solid, you know, organizational behavior scholar. And she was out sick one day. And the day she was out sick, they brought, like, she had a sub in, her colleague, a friend of mine, very, and he's known as a great teacher. So he comes in and he's got literally the tweed jacket on, right? With (laughs) elbow patches. Right out of central casting, right? (laughs) The older white guy and, you know, the blue button down and he starts teaching. And I was saying, oh my God, he is amazing. He's really good. And I realized I'm sus- like subject to it as well. Cause then after about 10 minutes, I said, no, no, no. My colleague is way better than this guy, right? Way better. Like the connection she makes and the way she's able to draw out this conversation and you know, the point she's able to leave the students with, he was not nearly as good, but yet my entire notion of what a successful professor is, is wow. also so deeply rooted wow. in male with the you know, tweed jacket. And I literally, I was thinking back to my own college experience and I don't think I had a single woman professor. Oh my gosh. I'm not surprised. Right. I I had, no, I I had one female professor and she was in gender studies. It was a great, Ah. you know, (laughs) you you know, know, the thing about that though, that when I, when I take all of our conversation and I pull some of these little points out, I, what I start to hear is the struggle of what, like how deep rooted is it? How far back does it go? And my mind starts to go to the place of DNA. Like how fundamentally is this built into our DNA? And when are we going to evolve as a species (laughs) to weed out these chromosomes, if you will, because they're so destructive. But it makes me then think about the future and you with your research and what you're doing. Where do you see yourself taking all of this and applying it in your research, in your classroom? Where's your vision and how you see this could evolve? Oh, a great question. I mean, certainly, I think the research and understanding this bias is incredibly important, making sure people are aware of this, even though obviously it is so deep rooted, you know, and and we see this again happening, you know, even now with the Democratic candidates coming out, you know, and already, you know, the white men are ahead. Never mind. The old white men, Bernie Sanders, Bernie Sanders, who... Real, I mean, I'm not going to get into politics, but look at all these other candidates. Exactly. exactly. And he is the front runner. It's and, 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 Joe and Joe Biden. And Joe Biden. And Joe Biden, who is now getting accused of, you know, inappropriately yeah. being yeah. nice to women, right? right. <laughs> Invading personal space. Right. Personal space, but also if you look at their records in terms of women, like they're not stellar. Right. And so we should be, you know, it'd be nice to think about having, you know, one of these qualified women, but time and time again, you already see it. And I hear women speaking this way too, that they find some problem with them or they're quote, you know, not likable or not electable and all these hurdles or biases that are coming out in the, you know, in the conversation just at, writ at large. 
And so I think the more we're able to, you know, point at this, you know, saying it to Joe Biden that this behavior, you know, is really invading personal space. It is a show of power as opposed to, you know, yeah. you being friendly. Right. It's not appropriate. And it is sexist. You know, you don't do that to men. You right. do that to women and you may, it makes them feel uncomfortable. Right. I don't see Biden nuzzling his head into the back of Obama's head. Right. Exactly. exactly. I, I don't think he would do that to Beto O'Rourke. Right. Or what, right. You know, it it's, it's that sort of behavior that comes up time and time again for women, young women. And so now that we're able to talk about it and illustrate this and show that how the bias is, is being, you know, is being acted upon, right, in terms of favorability or, you know, polling, et cetera. But, you know, I think it's a slow burn. <laughs> so it starts with the awareness, like you said, in the beginning. Yeah, like how do we, absolutely. how do you see this changing? And it, it, it does seem like it's, you know, it's something when you, you're looking for the tipping point. Yeah. At which point do you get so much awareness that it requires a, a volume to make the right. change happen? I think it's even more than that, Tim, though, because the awareness is there. And I, I actually really, um, there was a woman that wrote a book following um, Hillary Clinton's campaign. She was like the media manager. Her name's Amanda Lippman. And um, her book was called Don't Just March, Run for Something. Yeah. Right? So even though there's this awareness, like we march and we, you know, we make all this noise, it's not until you're in leadership or in decision-making roles that you can actually create real change. And so, you know, I've kind of taken that up myself too. I'm, I'm running for town meeting, you know, member. Hey, good for you. You know, I'm so, I'm, cause my town is filled with all these, no offense to them, but the older people. (laughs) That are it shouldn't be prefaced with no offense. It's that's that's just it. Why do we even have to do that? Like it right. needs to change. We need to change, right? And yeah. so I think that's incredibly important. So the extent that women can step up and become decision makers or you know be in roles that will change the image of what successful that role is to be successful doesn't have to be a man. You can have a woman in those roles. Will make a big difference in expectations. I so mean, you're running, you're running locally. That's new. That's awesome. So good luck. I, I know I'm already winning. Fare. There's an empty you'll, slot, so it's not. Go <laughs> farewell. Running on a post. <laughs> but also, too, I want to ask you. We can. Uh, I want to jump into a little bit of your funding side as well. Yeah. Uh, you, I, I think it's such a good opportunity to talk about what you're doing on the funding side. Tell yeah. us a little bit about where you're headed in a in in creating a fund. You have a partner who you're working with. Yeah, right? yeah. How so, do you, how do you see all this as a part of that in the big picture? Yeah, that's a great question too. So, um, for three years um, after I came to Babson, I worked to put together this um, venture capital forum for women, this venture capital conference. And we called it Capital W, the Boston Women's Venture Summit. And I organized that with my former venture capital boss who wanted to do it because she had met this woman who was phenomenal on paper, right? And phenomenal in person, but simply couldn't get funded. Her second round of funding closed. Mm -hmm. And my former boss said to me, I am so sick of hearing the same exact story, you know, 15 years after we closed our fund. You know, here we are again. And that fund, by the way, was the first women-owned, women-focused fund in the country. And this was back in 2000. Wow. Yeah. So here we are, you know, 2014. We're hearing the same story. We wrote the Diana report, getting the same statistics on funding. 
so with my former boss and this woman who was trying to raise capital, because by the time we organized a conference, she'd actually run out of money. So she had, yeah, she ended up closing her, her wow. business. Wow. So her business was a beauty e-commerce um, company. And so, of course, the reaction she was getting, she pitched, literally pitched 150 times in her venture capital fundraising process. And inevitably, the men she spoke to would say, oh, well, you know, let me ask my wife. Or, is there real? Do women really spend money on makeup? Uh. <laughs> or you know, maybe I should ask my assistant. And her business was really catering to millennials, the YouTube junkie, which you know, who who are c- completely comfortable with purchasing makeup online, and that was her business. And so she, you know, she ended up closing it. So she ended up organizing a conference with with me and um, my former boss. And we decided after running the conference for three years that the needle has not moved, right? Some checks were written from the conference, but they were all small dollars. Like, um, you know, some women in the audience actually wrote some angel money. The VCs didn't fund anything. They would show up and they would talk amongst themselves. And I I wanted to be like, this isn't a networking opportunity for you. This is for the women to interact with you and for you to develop some, you know, relationships that maybe you would fund. No. So we decided that we should probably look into doing our own fund. So that's exactly what we're doing. And we're really focused on these markets that we believe are really overlooked by 94% of the VC decision makers. And these, you know, female, we're calling female markets or female end users, because there is enormous potential for investment, for growth, you know, in these markets that are literally underfunded or overlooked by the, you know, kind of the traditional male VC. And they, they get around it a lot of the times because they'll say things like, well, you know, oh, we only focus in tech. But the definition of tech. Oh, so broad. It's so broad. When I worked in VC, we were tech investors and we literally looked at an online dog food company. (laughs) Jeez. How is that technology, right? It's dog food, but <laughs> <laughs> that was tech. <laughs> so yeah, so we, you know, we're we're trying, but you know, it's so funny the cycle continues because when we go talk to endowments and pension funds and funders, we know in our initial research, it's already well, we already have our funds. We look to, you know, and it's all they've invested in all men. They are not in, you know, we pitch pretty well, I think, but definitely, you know, we're a first time fund. And so I even made the point, I was like, well, how can you have an experienced investor if 94% of all the VCs are men, you are only going to get men with any track record. So yeah, it's been an interesting experience. It's such such a perpetuating problem and we're in the midst of it. As you know, we are out raising around mm-hmm. right now that we may not raise. You know, we may back away from the raise because we're hearing a lot of similar feedback and we're continuing to try to unpack it for ourselves mm-hmm. and understand where the barriers are. You know, we mm-hmm. obviously have a female founder. We're over the age of 30. Mm-hmm. Oh, thank you for that. Uh, slightly, slightly over the age of 30. I over love that you started at 30. 40. I don't even want to go any higher than that. Uh, and we have a product that is considered soft. Yes. Yeah. Feminine. Right? 
I have gotten feedback recently, and this is really remarkable to me. I don't think the market's that big. That was one of the pieces of feedback. And I said to this particular person, really, do only a few people communicate? Like, how is this market not big? Like, I don't have to, I don't have to explain to anybody the issue. And people have this immediate visceral reaction when we talk about communication skills, right? Mm-hmm. It just, it hits you. Mm-hmm. So to say that the market isn't that big is a real challenge in terms of you don't perceive this as being important is really what that means. That's code. Yeah. Or I don't see this as being really important. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Not it's interesting important enough to, to me. Right. Yeah. And uh, it's, you know, it's such a, it's, it, it's a learning experience on both ends. You know, fortunately, we're not going to go out of business by not raising money. However, mm-hmm. it really helps us or it, it challenges us to think about what else do we need to do with our product to address this issue. When mm-hmm. we when we started this conversation with you, and I think I've probably shared this with you before, I have tried to, over the past two years, find meaningful information about gender and uh, nonverbal delivery skills, yeah. Or, yeah. Or nonverbal messages. And yeah. there's almost nothing out there. There's, there's yeah. no place that I can find information to be able to say, women do this and men do this and this is what you're supposed to do or you know researchers have found that women who do this are get- nothing nothing which is remarkable in and of itself but it really has gotten us thinking about you know oftentimes companies are out doing one thing and then they uncover this other problem and then they kind of pivot <laughs> a little bit i don't know that we're pivoting to a gender based product but it did it has gotten me and i and i know tim to a, an extent as well thinking about how are we serving women because women have a very unique problem Mm -hmm. and women are more likely to want to practice and women are more like or more open to wanting to improve their skills because women will be right out front Mm -hmm. to say, I know it's probably holding me back. Mm -hmm. And I I, I shared with you again before we started the podcast that I was coaching last week a bunch of lawyers, both men and women. And what was really interesting is these are young lawyers. They're probably five years in at the most, and they work for a very top tier law firm. So you've been pretty successful if you have a job here. You have gone to a great law school. You have gone through an incredibly challenging selection process to be able to be offered a position as an associate at this firm and to have withstood that over three, four, five years. So these are all high caliber people and the expectation is they're going to walk into the room and they are all type A's. Mm -hmm. And what's interesting is that the men walk in and they are confident beyond words. They they want feedback, but they want feedback almost to reinforce how awesome they are. Mm-hmm. How can I be as awesome as I am <laughs> and even amp it up a notch, yeah. right? I mean, I'm being serious. Yeah. That's yeah. the conversation I'm having with them. They yeah. love me because I'm going to make them that much more amazing when they're already amazing. Mm-hmm. The women come in and they say, I 
here are the 27 different things I think I need to improve on. Can you help me with this? And by the way, can you tell me how to show up differently so that I'm not perceived as a petite, pretty, young woman and I am perceived as a very confident litigator? And it's, it's remarkable to me. And as a coach and using our product, it's fascinating because all I think about is how do we tackle this? How do we create a pathway for women to have more opportunities to tap into the knowledge base that we all have to help them be better at what they do? Because there's a real gap there. Yeah. Um, It's funny you say that because two things about that. So, you know, for women in general, there is what they call this the double bind for women in management where, you know, if they act, and I use Hillary Clinton again as my example from political science, that when women act too manly or too masculine in certain areas, you know, people don't like that. They want them to still be feminine because they're women. Right. And that happens particularly in management and in politics. We see that a lot. Um, But in law, in the context that you just said, um, it's similar to entrepreneurship, where we have these very dominant masculine roles established in law and in entrepreneurship. And so women who act manly in those contexts do better. So they should not act feminine. In other words, in the law, it's been shown. And in entrepreneurship, I would argue, you should definitely not be feminine, right? Right. Having said that, um, there was some really interesting work. It was just in the New York Times about how we train people. And this goes to your point that men are taught that as much as they do, it's fine, right? And they, they're very confident in their abilities, even if they're not perfect. They don't do right. a perfect job. Whereas women have to have everything, you know, not just get the 95, why didn't I get the 100, right? right. You get every little piece absolutely correct. They work to make perfect, perfect products. And I already see that in my daughter, who is seven right? She is such a perfectionist and wants everything to be perfect before she hands it in, in her assignment. And so this article's point was, even at a young age, we need to start training women to say, nope, good enough. I'm awesome. This was great. You know, be okay with it. Just like the boys are. Right. I don't know if that's genetic or if it's training, but women do need to be told, you don't have to have your foot right on the accelerator all the time. Like you need to be able to ease up and say, you've done fine. It doesn't have to be perfect. It just, you know, you're good. You're good enough. Like you said, you came, you're here. So you're very good. Right. Right. That's the thing. So two immediate things came to mind and you brought up something that I wanted to talk about, which is the next generation. But the first thing that is fascinating as you're talking about that, I think of me and Tim Mm -hmm. as male versus female co-founders. We approach things very much along those lines where I am like, nope, we got to do it better. Nope. I got to, I got to work harder at this because I feel like when we walk into a room, he's already okay. Yes. He's already okay because he's the man. That is so true. And that again is, again, is this, you know, institutional norms, these, you know, biases, people assume that what he's presenting is fine. Whereas 
does have to work harder. He's so, a white guy. He's got it. He's got it going on. And right. I feel like I walk into the room. Not only do I, can I not make a mistake, but my hair has to be just right. I have to be wearing the exact right clothes. Mm-hmm. If you know my skirt is too short or too long, or you know if I've got if my blouse is cut too low, or what am I wearing in jewelry? Everything, everything. Right? Men have a uniform. Yes. Women, yes. If yes. women do have a uniform, and that's it goes to what you were saying, if we all wore a uniform, then we're too bland, right? Yes. We're not, we're not yeah. feminine enough. Yes. And we're not, you know, we're just generic. Yeah. So I, I feel that. I feel that all the time. And it, it has impacted how we've structured our business, how we initially pitched to investors, how our own experience with our investors has gone in terms of how the gender roles have played out. But I think about it because I'm a mother of boys and I have two teenage sons and I talk about them quite a bit, but I wonder, and I'd almost love to have my 18 year old son here right now because on the surface, his viewpoint is very democratic in so far as his girlfriend and he should have the exact same opportunities in life. And I have spent a whole lot of time trying to teach both of my kids, but particularly my older son, because he's incredibly type A. He's 6'5". He's an athlete. He's a good student. He's white. And he's relatively handsome. And I've said to him for years, I said, your feet will never touch the ground. (laughs) You got into a top tier school for college. You only applied to one. You're playing sports at this college. They're throwing money at you. Your feet will never touch the ground. And it's rare air that you're living in. But uh, when I talk to him as a person, he doesn't see the gender differences. He doesn't, he doesn't, he doesn't comprehend a world where a woman should not have the exact same opportunity as him. And then it makes me wonder is he the beginning of the change or is he clueless? So that's an interesting point because is it that they shouldn't or they don't? Right. There's a big difference. Have we been I, philosophically, I, and he's very mature. I, 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 I love this conversation because I've had the fortune of working with him. He's been an intern at our company. I've seen how he's done things. The way he treats others is incredibly equal. There is no boundary or level or hierarchy with him. And yet that very question is the one that really pushes it out there for me, should not have any differences. But is it a reality that they do and we're just not aware of them, that he's just not seen or been exposed to that? He's lived in a very great environment where you've been able to carve that out. Uh, What happens when he goes and is exposed outside the bubble of reality where that does happen. happen. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I feel like he he just doesn't know. He doesn't know, yeah. have I not beaten him over the head enough to tell him, you know, y- you have to be the change. But I wonder, and you know, he's just one example of Generation Z who presumably are coming into the world with a more open mind, it's okay to be gay, like we don't, you know, color doesn't exist, diversity is a different conversation. Is that really a change? Or, back to our initial conversation, is it so hardwired in us 
that we don't think about it. Boys still play with trucks and girls still play with dolls. You know, it's still, girls still hit middle school, but girls still hit middle school, not all girls, but many girls still hit middle school and their skirts get shorter. I mean, it's, they're, they are provocative. They are, they're, they're, uh, they're on this mission to do what girls were born to do, right? To procreate. So how much of that's hardwired? Well, I think the combination, actually. It's funny you say that because I think, you know, to the extent that you can educate and make sure he's aware of, you know, his privilege, really. Yeah. Right. And I, you know, it's funny because my husband is a white guy and we've actually had this conversation where he said, you know, it occurred to me that you're, you know, you're upset at me because of all these things that I had no clue about, right? You know, like, all oh, that's just given to me. And he's like, you're right. <laughs> he's like, I get it. But, you know, it's not something I ever really, I'm not even aware of or that I'm, you know, that I know about. Now he is, of course. But, you know, until you inform someone like that of this, you know, privilege that they do have, they don't necessarily see it. You know, we, he is from just an example of this. So we, he's from new Orleans and um, we used to go actually to the casino with his mother and his, the man she married, his stepfather, I suppose, um, for these Christmas shows at one of the casino, you know, big arenas. And we go to this show cause they like to go, you know, gamble for the weekend or whatever. And we go see the show at the Christmas, you know, big show in, in the, in, and if you've been to these casinos, yep. it's one of the biggest auditorium stages ever. And we walk in, we take a seat and I look around and I said to him, I think I'm the only non-white person in this entire place. In the whole casino. <laughs> in the whole world. The <laughs> entire place. And it has, there's like thousands of people in this auditorium. I was the only, you know, non-white person. We found one other black man in the audience. So he's like, no, no, I saw, you know, like, so patients like that, just pointing that out of what, you know, being the other, being the only of, you know, this sense of difference that, and what that means and how you're judged and what people look at you and things like that um, are incredibly important, but it's also recognizing what we're seeing. And the other example I, I have is, um, so, you know, when I was growing up, my father, who I always say is not very typical Indian, because I think he's not typical Indian because his mother died when he was young. <laughs> so <laughs> he wasn't raised with an Indian mother, you know, <laughs> his feet doesn't do, don't touch the ground, you know, sort of thing. But he, um, he pointed out to me that watching Sesame Street, did you know there were no girl monsters? When we were young, it was all boys. And my father was annoyed, you know, and wrote a letter. He's like, this isn't right. Like, where's the gender balance? (laughs) Fascinating. I did did not know that. Now there's a couple girls. Like, Prairie Dawn was the only girl. But it was, you know, Oscar, Cookie Monster, Grover. Then they brought in Elm. You know, they're all boys. All of them. Interesting. Huh. Isn't that interesting? It that is. I, I never, I never even thought that. about it. Right. And my dad pointed that out to me when I he was he was irritated by it. And I'm like, you know what? That is true. We need representation. 
Even among monsters. <laughs> uh, even, even with monsters, there has to be equal representation everywhere. So, <laughs> I, you know, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to change direction here a little bit because I want to think about solutions, right? You know, mm-hmm. we have, as you know, our app, our software, the, and the goal of Presenter is to really create a world of more confident speakers. That mm-hmm. doesn't, you know, not for men, not for women, for everybody, everybody in their own right. And I wonder how we can utilize technology to help break some of these boundaries. Have you heard of anything or what are your thoughts on how technology can help change some of these boundary lines and, and reduce some of these biases? So, I mean, what immediately comes to mind for me are things like, um, you know, the car dealer and when, you know, that there was a great study that showed that white men get the best prices right off the bat, right? Then it's white women, then it's black men, then black women or, you know, women of color get the, the most expensive price quotes in lots of places. So technology has already enabled a, more of a level playing field. So you don't have to walk in the car dealer and be you know, given a higher price just because of how you look or your race or your gender. So things like that, I think there are lots of ways that technology can level this sort of or even out the biases that you may face. Having said that, that, you know, business is a place where, you know, this interaction, this interpersonal interaction, the face-to-face business meeting or, you know, in, in entrepreneurship, the pitch is incredibly important to the pricing, to the decision-making, to the overall negotiation. So there is, you know, there still hasn't been a good technology, um, you know, substitute for this sort of thing. And, you know, I talk about this, I'm sure you guys do too, that as much as we could use, you know, a phone call or email, it's just very different being in person with a yes. face. You know, we're doing a podcast and so nobody can see us, but you know, but the point is, right. it, it's, sure. it's very different to have an, a live interaction with somebody and you learn a lot of different things, or at least we think we interpret a lot of different um, information from a live presentation, uh, meeting, etc. So I, you know, I don't know that there's a substitute, but I think being aware of these structural and stereotypical um, notions of what people expect. And that's where, you know, I obviously, you know, your software and your coaching do a great deal for that to be able to train people to say, this is what people expect. This is what you have to do in order to, you know, maybe get the second meeting or to get a deal in place. Right. You know, and that's what I teach as well. Like, you know, thinking about what do, what do VCs look for? What do you have to do right. to pitch well? So that I think is helpful. I don't think there's a, there's a, another way to bring in technology into a live thing. Well, I think using technology to educate in the first and foremost yeah. is, is a big piece of that. You know, when I think about our conversation on here, in the very beginning, we talked about it's not really male, female. We started this off with the feminine characteristics yeah. versus masculine. Right. And maybe what, the, what it is, is it's not necessarily to make it gender specific, but understand the variance of the characteristics. There are benefits to having feminine characteristics. This is not, right. 
you know, right. the way we've discussed it is where it's not been good, but there are a ton of great applications sure. for it. So maybe it's more around situational environments where particular characteristics, regardless of gender, become an important part of the conversation. Yes. I, I Two things just came to mind for me. One is I did, I shared earlier, I did a pitch today and it's to a female angel group, but it was a blind pitch. Mm-hmm. It was done on Zoom with no camera. And it was interesting doing it that way. I felt like I felt like it was received differently, and I felt like the questions were handled really differently on both fronts. I felt like I could handle the questioning differently, even though I could hear the voice of the people, what I didn't I just had no other information than their voice, so I could and their name, so I could determine if they were male or female. Uh, maybe try to imagine how old they might be, but I also felt like they received me differently, and I felt I'm typically relatively comfortable when I pitch, but I felt less comfortable pitching today because I didn't have I didn't have the context of an audience, and it was just. I just went, but I thought the Q and A was a very different experience. So that was really interesting to me, and I love the fact that they were doing it blind. I I felt like it took a lot of pressure off yes. of me in yes. terms of what I looked like, what I was wearing, like all that stuff that I feel like as a woman I always factor in. But the other thing that just came to mind that is probably a crazy and provocative idea, but you know sometimes those are good ideas. We have, much like Tim just said, you know, we spent a whole lot of time talking about all the negative aspects of femininity or how it holds us back. Well, you know, when we talk about millennials and we talk about Gen Z, we spend a whole lot of time complaining about how different they are. And we spend a lot of time complaining about how they communicate. And the big communication skills gap is really based on the fact that they aren't they don't necessarily excel at face-to-face conversation yeah. because they communicate differently. Right. What if that were okay? Yeah. What if that was what created a little bit more neutrality yeah. that we moved away from face-to-face conversation? As someone who's a Gen Xer, that makes my skin crawl and it <sighs> makes me really uncomfortable. I'm getting hives as we speak. I don't but like what this. if what if that's actually okay? Yes. In fact, Tammy, I love this, by the way. I know it no, I know it makes you guys uncomfortable, but I think there there's kind of two worlds where we have to think about this. So, you know, what you are talking about, this kind of like live connection and being able to really understand what the nonverbals mean and you know what Tim's saying, like building this connection, I think are really great within organizations when you already have established working relationships with each other. But when it comes to decision-making, as in venture capital, based solely on a pitch, my new thinking is, why do we have to pitch at all, right? Why? Like, what is the point of having the pitch if you've put the information in the business plan and I'm making a financial decision, I should not be swayed just because somebody, you know, walks in and is a white guy and I get mesmerized into this bias, right? Right. Right. I assume that they're going to be successful when I read on paper that, you know, they're new to the game or they're just out of school. And, you know, how do I know they're going to have any sort of ability? It's just my own bias that is pushing me 
to say, oh yeah, like, oh yeah, that's the one to go with. I, I know that happens, right? I know I'm yeah. subject to it too. So for this year's, we have a pitch competition here at Babson and I'm usually asked to judge. So I was one of the judges of one of the tracks. And so for this year, what I did was, and they started doing this last year, they sent the executive summaries separately from the pitches. So the pitches were these videotapes and the summaries were just these one pagers. And so I did my analysis just purely based on the one pagers. I didn't even look at the pitches because I'm like, let me evaluate this business on its merits on paper because I'm not going to be working with these people. This isn't, you know, any sort of relational consideration for me. What do I care what they pitch like? And then I did watch a couple pitches to see, and you know, some of them were okay. I would say some of them were only not so great, but I did find myself thinking more about the quality of the presentation in terms of the business. And I don't think we should. Yeah. Did it, did, yeah, that's interesting. Did when you did, I love this. So yeah. <laughs> I don't want to dive in here a little bit. Yeah. You evaluated off of the business side without the pitch yeah. and watched a few of the pitches. Did you find alignment in your assessment from the from the one pagers versus? I know you only watched a couple of them. Do you feel like it would have matched up? Because your your own research talks about. Listen, they they yeah. go off the the passion and the comfort and this is so fascinating to me so in fact i did last year i used all the judges results and i haven't done anything with this paper but what i found was i'm trying (laughs) to what i'm trying to what i showed is that the so i had the judges first evaluate based on uh the written the written came first again and then i had them evaluate on the pitch but they had already read the written and so they were somewhat aligned, but they weren't totally aligned. Mm. So the same ones, the same judge didn't even pick the same pitches based on the pitch versus the reading material. Interesting. So definitely not. Because, yeah. for example, one pitch I will, re- I, you know, one of the businesses that I selected, the pitch was terrible. The pitch was really bad. And I think part of it was... This was somebody that was new to business, new to, um, frankly, had an accent, right? An international student. And so that also factors into how we're evaluating the quality of the person, right? His command of the language is, you know, and like I said, so from my study, which you guys know this, but when I looked at those pitches in my sample, I can pick out the winners. I know who the VCs are going to pick without even listening to their pitches because so much of it is based on the presentation style. And my point is like, I am not sure that that should influence this decision. Okay. So consider this one organizations of the future are going to be dispersed, right? So everybody isn't going to be sitting around a conference room together. We're going to be spending a lot of time on video conferencing and we spend a lot of time during the day, text messaging each other. That's how everybody operates in Slack, some tool, like that's how we communicate. Yes. So in reality, when we think about the workplace, the workplace of the future isn't going to be as dependent on face-to-face communication. And when we work with, with, when we're coaching or training people, what we hear all the time is, I don't really do face-to-face presentations. A lot of what I do is virtual. It's much more informal now, even with the lawyers, you know, a lot of what they're doing is not, you know, aside from stepping into a courtroom, 
a lot of what's happening is is happening in what we would consider from what we're accustomed to a non-traditional way, but it's becoming more the norm. So mm-hmm. I, I do think that there's something about how we reframe, even though we know that we're hardwired to look and hear before we can process what you're saying, what if we say, but that's not a reality anymore? That was that that made sense 50 years ago when all we did was look and hear people. Mm-hmm. Now we do a lo- we make a lot of assessments through writing, right? Mm-hmm. And we don't put a lot of emphasis on how people write. Mm-hmm. But the other piece to that, which I think is really interesting, and it's funny that I have not thought about this or we haven't thought about this, where we were invited to use presenter at Brooklyn Law School. They're doing a pitch competition next week. And they're using presenter as another judge. Presenter has absolutely no subjectivity, has no bias built in. Presenter is based on the fundamental principles of how we form impressions, but doesn't have the ability to hear an accent, to see the color of someone's skin, to know what their gender is. And it's going to be really interesting. But what it makes me think about is that we've spent a lot of time as a business defending how presenter assesses in comparison to a human as if the subjective human is the better measurement. Right. Who says this, the subjective human? Who says that that's real? What if presenter, (laughs) hello investors, what if presenter is actually the better judge? Yeah. Well, this will be fascinating because frankly, this is, this is my, where I've landed because this is the pushback that investors will say, well, of course I'm taking into consideration this, that, and the other. And you can show them, no, you're not. How are you doing that? Prove it to me. Right. You know what's, you're your, what's your, yeah, then why what's your measurement? Am I, why am I less valuable as someone who has been a working professional for 25 or 30 years? Yeah. I have been successful in every business I've been a part of. Why am I less valuable because I'm too old? Mm-hmm. Right, like that doesn't add up. Like if you put it down on paper, how is it? You can't. I don't care if you tell me. Oh, they're risk. They're not. I'm risk averse. I'm not trying to be ageist, but how does like, a person who can't even buy a drink get <laughs> right? Down? Exactly. I mean, what do you do at those networking events? Give me Kool Aid. I just <laughs> don't know what to do with that. Yeah, I mean, it's it's a really interesting notion, and you know. I, I fall right into the trap of saying, yes, of course, I'm going to be a better judge than presenter is. And we just recently, I think I shared this with you, we recently did a white paper that showed, that compared the same group of people, and it was a 70% correlation between how presenter assessed and how the humans assessed. And I will tell you all day long, because I really dug into the data, that the humans assessed on very specific areas. So there were coaches who judged people better because they had better body language. And there were coaches who judged people better because they had better eye contact. And we can measure that because we saw how presenter measured it. And they'll tell you all day long, I don't have a bias. I'm a trained coach. Yeah. I know, and I will tell you all day long, of course you have biases. Of course you're you're biased. You can't help but You're happen. human. You cannot. <laughs> so no when, when I think about technology, and this is not to toot our own horn, but I just think about it in a very broad sense, maybe we're trying to tackle the problem from an old construct of saying that Moravian was right 
and it's 55, 38, and seven, and we all know that, and therefore, you know, 93% of our perception comes from what we see and what we hear, but maybe that doesn't apply today anymore, because I think about something silly like this. I've been a little obsessed. I've been binge-watching episodes of Catfish on MTV and these people who fall in love online. Mm-hmm. And they have these very, I mean, th- th- that's an extreme situation because half the time they're not real people. But you think about someone who meets online and forms a relationship online, never really having, you know, maybe they talk to each other, but they don't physically interact with each other until a certain period of time. And they manage to form a bond just by texting or talking. And, there's, and it's very real. It's very, very real, and the other part comes in later. Now, you know, when it comes to your attraction to another human being, physically or romantically, that may be a different story, or maybe not, or maybe not. Yeah. I just, I think, I think the whole conversation is so fascinating, yeah. and at the end of the day, we could probably go on for days talking about yeah. <laughs> And I think it's the beginning of a conversation. I'd like to suggest that we think about how we use presenter for evaluating yeah. pitches, because I think that would be really interesting for the research to see if presenter is bringing another lens yeah. to it. And it certainly would help us from a development standpoint to think about how, what we would do, you know, how we might continue to evolve the development to be able to really effectively uh, assess people blindly. Well, Lakshmi, I know we are at the end of our time. We've gone really long. Thank you so much for the conversation. This was amazing, and I do <laughs> think we're amazing. Yeah. Thank you for that. Before we let you go, we have one final question we always like to ask, and then we will let you sign off and, and go on about your day. We always like to ask, and we will show our age at this point, what's on your nightstand? What are you reading? What are you listening to? What is occupying your brain space in your quote unquote downtime? Oh, you are so, this is so, I wish I had a better answer because (sighs) I love to read and I have not had time because um, what ends up in my bed is usually a four-year-old and a (laughs) (laughs) five-year-old. And occasionally the seven-year-old. So um, I have not had much sleep lately. But, um, I so I love Jack Reacher book novels. To tell you the truth. Oh, I, I love know. that. I am totally unexpected. I know I'm a huge fan. I know it's not the greatest novels in the world, but I love them. They're so so good. But um, so I'm out of them because I. But I have one that I'm waiting to read. On my nightstand is actually a New Yorker. Um, not just one, but the last four. Because of course I haven't finished. <laughs> <laughs> well, you have children with you. That's you little kids. When my kids were that young, the only thing we did is look at Brain Quest. We played Brain Quest, little, the little cards, and they used to lay in bed with me at night. And I learned a whole lot of things about second grade and first grade and yeah. all of that. So I appreciate I appreciate it. One day they will get out of your bed. I know. I was like, yeah. And you'll be, it'll be a bittersweet moment, but suddenly you'll have time to consume things. <laughs>